Welcome uh, to our broadcast. Looking forward to studying our Bibles together this evening. Hello, hello, hello. We are still going to be in Daniel chapter 7. We, we touched it. Uh, we're going to touch it again some more this evening. And it's good to see you, Sister Ingrid, Sister Yvette. It's good to see you guys. Uh, those of you who are joining us on Facebook, good evening. It's it's always very very interesting, you know. As I prepare for the studies every night, uh, you know, as I'm going over certain things, things that I I've known for years, other things that I I'm reviewing them, like oh, I never saw that way, or you know, I never know exactly how the Holy Spirit's going to communicate the truth, but I'm always excited to study it because it always it always builds me up, it always puts me in a better better place here in my mind. And so before we begin our study this evening, um, because I'm not smart enough or intelligent enough to communicate the realities of the gospel to you, I'm going to ask that you bow your heads with me as we ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide, uh, that the deep truths of the scripture can be fully understood and fully applied. If that's all right, just bow your heads. As we pray, Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy. We thank you, Father, for not giving us what we deserve, but giving us what your dear son does. And Lord, as we're about to open our Bibles, as we're about to examine the sacred pages of your word, as we are going to examine history, we pray for the guidance of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that that which would be offensive to some would be softened by the influence of your spirit and that we would see Jesus. We pray this in the name of Jesus, and we claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. Amen. All right, my friends. So tonight's subject is the rise of the Antichrist and the secret of his power. The rise of the Antichrist and the secret of his power. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm not going to be focusing only on a, a negative component of Bible prophecy. I'm going to highlight what the Bible presents, and also I'm going to highlight the secret that we need to know and understand as far as our spiritual growth and our spiritual development. So as we're studying this evening, open your Bibles with me to the book of Daniel, of course. Open your Bibles to the book of Daniel, and we're going to read Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter seven. And the reason the reason why we're just we're taking our time with the passage is because we're not in a rush. We're not in a hurry. We're trying to lay a good foundation. You know, there are other passages. Daniel eight. We're going to be doing Daniel eight on Sunday. And that's going to be a very in-depth, deep, profound study. But before we can get to that deep, profound study, we must understand the principles laid in Daniel seven, because seven comes before eight. And so we're going to lay some very simple principles out there. And before I even get to those principles directly in Daniel 7, I do want to read a couple of what I consider framework Bible texts, framework comments that help us better understand the truths for this time. So let me go back. You have your Bible open to Daniel 7. Let me just share a couple of things with you uh, straight away. So the first thing I want you to see and understand is this in the annals of human history 
in the annals of human history, the growth of nations, the rise and fall of empires appear as if dependent on the will and prowess of man. The shaping of events seems to a great degree to be determined by his power, ambition, or caprice. And it says, but in the word of God, the curtain is drawn aside and we behold above, behind, and through all the play and counterplay of human interests and power and passions, the agencies of the all-merciful one silently, patiently working out the counsels of his own will. So, my friends, this is a, a profound statement. I, I find it to be fascinating, actually. And the reason why I find it to be fascinating is because it does appear at times that these persons that are in charge of our government or the persons that are in charge of the global influence in the world or the persons that have the most cachet or the most money, these persons seems like they are in control. But the reality is God raises up kings and he takes them down and he takes them down because he's working and organizing everything after the counsel of his own will. I want you to keep that in mind because I know that there are a lot of people who are into and observe the workings of the enemy uh, or they're looking at a conspiracy here or there. But I tell you the truth, it matters not largely the secret conspiracies of men for the ultimate one that's in charge sees all things and he's in control of all things and he's working and dovetailing all of these events to fulfill his will. Now you should be asking me, what is the counsel of God's will? Go with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians. We're going to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading. And again, I, I always like to start from verse 1, but we can't do that for sake of time. But let's start at verse number 9, okay? He, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse number 9. The Bible says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, so God has made known unto us, the believers, the mystery of his will. What is that? According to his good pleasure, which he have purpose where? In himself. What is it that he's purposed in himself? That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Do you get that? So he's he's orchestrating, God is orchestrating that which is in heaven and in earth. He's orchestrating within himself that in the fullness of time, he might gather together. What's that mean? All his children on planet earth, all his children from the surrounding universes, there's to be one family, one heart, one mind. Wait, there's more. Watch, it says in verse number 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, 
that's you and me we have attained an, when we accept jesus christ we have obtained an internal eternal inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will do you see that so god is orchestrating all things after the counsel of his own will it doesn't matter who's in office as president it doesn't matter who's in office as mayor it doesn't matter who sits in the vatican or who sits in the most influential seat in any church the lord god almighty sets up kings and he takes them down and he's working everything after the counsel of his own will that ultimately salvation will bring together his children into one family are you following my friends are you following we're starting with a heavy thought but if you can keep with me this evening you're going to go deeper than what we've even gone nice before all right so let's go a little little bit deeper i want to share go back and share a couple of bible verses with you notice this this is isaiah 42 verse 8 isaiah 42 verse 8 says i am the lord that is my name and my glory will i not give another neither my praise to graven images well why why does he feel this way why is god saying that behold the former things are come to pass and new things do i declare before they spring forth i tell you of them so here's god speaking he says i'm not sharing my glory with some graven image and I'm going to tell you why, because I am able to tell you the end from the beginning. I'm going to tell you that what's going to come to pass before it actually happens. This is the power of God. No other, no other divine being exists that can do what was just declared. Isaiah 46, verse 9. The Bible says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Here, God is making a statement about himself. Then he says in verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. Well, that's interesting. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure now my friends now this pleasure that god wants to do is not a selfish pleasure we just talked about what his pleasure was we talked about what his will was his counsel uh, the counsel of his will his his pleasure is to bring all his children into oneness into the peace of the kingdom of god that's his desire that's his plan and my friends as the lord tells us what's going to transpire in the future it's simply to build confidence that he is able to save and that he's not made any mistakes. He's not being reactive. Our Lord, our God, our King is a proactive King. Amen. Now watch this. John 13, 19, the Bible says, Now I tell you before, before it come, I tell you before it come, when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like, Jesus is saying, look, I'm, I'm going to tell you who I am. However, I know that's not going to be enough for you. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen before it happens. So when it happens, you can look back and say, man, okay, he is the Messiah. 
He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. I'm going to tell you before so that when it comes to pass, you might believe. Now, Amos 3, 7 is a pivotal text that I want you to make sure you have locked in your mind. Now, all the texts should be locked in, but this one in particular, especially if we're, when, we're, when we're studying Bible prophecy. The Bible says in Amos 3, 7, surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophet. So tell me something. Will the Lord do anything without revealing his secret into his servants, the prophet? Well, the answer is no. There is nothing that the Lord will do without telling us beforehand that he's going to do it and he's going to tell his prophets. So that tells me that if I want to know what the Lord is about to do, I should be studying and reading and examining the writings of the prophets. Are you following what I'm saying? Now, Again, we're building a case right now. I'm building slowly tonight. Notice this. Notice this. It says, Amos chapter 3, verse 7. I read that already. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children for how long? Forever that we may do all the words of this law. So the secrets belong to God, but once he reveals those secrets, once he expresses those secrets, then it is incumbent upon us to be obedient to the instruction that is then revealed, right? So he's not just telling you for the sake of telling you so you know what's going on and you can be the first one to tell somebody that X, Y, Z is going to happen. That's not the intent of prophecy. The intent of prophecy is it is given to you so you can believe on Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. And also that when it is revealed that you would obey the instruction that is given in God's word. All right. You still with me? Let's go a little bit further. Now, I like this because <laughs> this references my mind to a place in the Old Testament sanctuary, that wilderness tabernacle. And the, the psalmist says in Psalms 25 and verse 14, the secret of the Lord. The what of the Lord? The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. And he will show them his covenant. Now, my friends, we're going to that this text will you'll be seeing this text more and more as the days go by. But I just want to throw a little bit of a, a little bit of light here on the text. The text says the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. Now, that fear is not like a terrified. I'm a, I got to hide fear. It's more like a reverence and respect fear. And those that fear the Lord that are obedient to what he says, he says, I'm going to show them my covenant. Now, those of you who used to watch TV or those of you who watch TV, maybe back in the day you saw uh, a movie called Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Anybody seen that? Back in the day, I saw that. And they, uh, they, they, I believe it was in that one or maybe one of the others where they got this Ark of the Covenant, right? And when they, when they got the Ark of the Covenant, and then all sorts of crazy stuff happened when they, you know, messed with it or whatnot, but that Ark of the Covenant in the sanctuary is found in the most holy place. Now, let me express to you the significance of this as best I can in human words. If you come to my house 
I will take you to my office. It depends who you are, though, right? More than, more than likely, I'll bring you to my office, right? I'll, I'll let you sit in my office. I'll let you sit in my living room. You might even get to come in the kitchen, depending on how my wife's feeling about that, right? So you can go to my living room. You can go in my office. You can walk around the school. We have a school here. You can walk around. But my bedroom is, you know, you're probably not going to see that. That That's a special place where covenant relations are had. I hope you're understanding what I'm saying. See, that, that, that bedroom is our most holy place. Only special folks get to go in there. I, I believe the only person that has gone into our bedroom that I'm aware of has to be my daughter. My wife, my daughter. Maybe our, my, my parents or my wife's mom when she came over, right? But most more often than not, only special people get to go into that most holy place. And in this sense, think about what it says. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will shew them his covenant, i.e., he will take them into a very sacred place where not everybody can go. This is a special place. And when we're looking at prophecy, my friends, and we're looking at the revelation of the secrets and, and the heart of God, we're looking at entering into fellowship with him. That's what we're looking at. We're looking at look, going into fellowship with him. But let's go a little bit further. Jesus would often teach in parables. Again, this is all framework. So before I even before we get back into Daniel 7, I need to get this framework to you. God gives his secrets to his servants, the prophets. He gives it to those that he's close to relation to. The purpose of prophecy is so that we can have a love relationship with Jesus, that we can trust him and obey him. But why would Jesus speak in these strange symbols like dragons and beasts, lions and leopards? And why would, why would God speak in this way? I found a passage that I think is, would be useful to us. Uh, go with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew, the 13th chapter, Matthew, the 13th chapter, and we're looking at verse number 10, all right? Matthew, the 13th chapter, and we're looking at verse number 10. The Bible says, And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? Why are you speaking to them in, in this secret code, in this, in this special language? Why speak you unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. My friends, pay attention. To you, it is given to understand the mysteries of heaven, but to them, not so much. Hmm, wait, there's more. It goes on to say, verse 12, For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not for him, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables. Why? Because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. Hmm. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this 
people's heart is waxed gross and their ears are dull of hearing and their eyes they have closed lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their hearts and should be converted and I should hear them. Wait, wait, heal them. Wait a second, wait a second. <laughs> Why is this important? Think about this for a moment, brothers and sisters. God intentionally speaks in parables to test the reality of one's love for what God has to say. You ever saw, you ever met a person and you really didn't understand them? Like you actually interact with them and you just did not understand them. They seemed strange to you. They were like, what, who is this person? And then the more time you spent with them, the less of a riddle they were. Huh? The more time you spent with them, the less of a riddle they were, the more became revealed. And so it is when God speaks a parable. He speaks a parable. If a man doesn't want to understand, it will go right over his head, even though the truth is plain as day. And so it is in Bible prophecy. There are beasts and there are images. These images are parables. These are signs and symbols. Those who have an ear, let them hear. Those who have an open heart, that parable will be made plain. Notice this. I found I found this uh I found this uh, this next statement to be quite fascinating. Listen, listen to this. It is a test of the heart. That's how I see it. It's a test of the heart. Wherever hearts are open to receive the truth, Christ is ready to instruct them. Do you guys hear that? Wherever hearts are open to receive the truth, Christ is ready to instruct them. He reveals to them the Father. Hmm. So many, I think many, honestly, brothers and sisters, I think many have missed the significance of all these images in the Bible. They have focused on the beast. They have focused on these things, but the focus should not be that per se. There is a revelation of the character of God that will be seen even when we're talking about these creatures and these symbols and these images. He reveals to them the Father and the service acceptable to him who reads the heart. For such he uses, what's it say? No parables. Mm. To them, as to the woman at the well, he says, I that speak unto thee am he. You notice how Jesus was with the disciples. He was speaking a parable. And then he would pull his disciples aside and explain the parable. To them, he would he would just make it plain. Sometimes he would keep it in parable form for them because their hearts were not ready to receive the instruction that God had given to him. So parables are given as a test of the condition of the heart. And when we're in this study, my friends, I want you to examine your place with God. Examine your heart with God. Father, where do I stand? What is it that you really want me to gather from this study or the study of these creatures? Okay, now that we've set the framework, and that took about 20 minutes, 25 minutes to set the framework. Now let's begin our study. I want you to open your Bibles now to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, and I want you to begin reading with me verse number 1. 
Daniel chapter 7 and verse number 1. Daniel 7 and verse 1. Hi, sweetie. <laughs> Daniel 7 and verse 1. The Bible says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea. Now, last time we studied, we looked at this and we said, the striving of the winds upon the great sea. Sea was a symbol of peoples and nations. The striving of the winds was a scattering by the, by the God of heaven, allowing certain armies and things to come and scatter the people of God into different places. And there was an agitation. There was a discomforting taking place amongst the, the nations and upon the people of God. That's what we said. And then we, we went on to read verse 3. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. So each one different from the previous one. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked. And it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given it. And I beheld another beast, a second, like unto a bear, and it raised itself on one side. And it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I beheld in lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The four, the beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and breaking pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. I beheld, till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of its head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were open. Hmm. I beheld then, because of the voice of that of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. And we're going to read verse 15, and then we're going to double back, okay? I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, in the midst of my body, 
and the visions of my head troubled me. Okay, let's pause here. Now, my friends, I'm going to give an observation, okay? I want you to stay with me. Do you remember when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream? He had a dream, the head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, and then he had feet, part of iron and part clay, right? You remember that? He had those, he had those elements in his dream. And then he had the rock cut out without hands, strikes the image at the feet, and this rock grows into a great mountain till it fills the whole earth. You guys remember that? Now, why did God give Nebuchadnezzar the dream with that type of imagery? Gold, silver, brass, iron, stone. These this, this material is familiar to the king because these are kingdom-building materials. Does that make sense? In other words, God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream that the imagery would be familiar to him. He would understand it. He would relate to it. It was kingdom building material, gold, silver, brass, iron, uh, clay, stone. All this is kingdom building material. What about Daniel 7? We have a lion, a bear, a leopard, a dreadful and terrible beast. What do they have in common? All of these creatures are beasts of prey. Let me say it again. All of these creatures are beasts of prey. They, they, they go and they attack and they hunt. These are all beasts of prey. Another commonality between the imagery in Daniel 7 is that all of these creatures are unclean beasts. Are you with me? So Daniel 2, you have kingdom-building elements, gold, silver, brass, legs of iron, feet, part of iron, and part clay. In Daniel 7, you have beasts of prey. And they're unclean. Just to give you a little, little, uh, a little preview into, into Daniel 8. In Daniel 8, you have a he-goat and a lamb, and they have a horn. Now, the he-goat and the lamb, these are all clean beasts. When I say clean, meaning that in the Levitical uh, writings, these animals could be eaten. They were allowed to be eaten. These were sacrificial animals. Uh, uh, beast. Okay. You can actually sacrifice them in the sanctuary. You couldn't sacrifice a lion in the sanctuary or a bear or any of those things. So you have clean beasts that can be sacrificed in Daniel 8. You have beast of prey and unclean in Daniel 7, and you have kingdom building material in Daniel 2. But believe it or not, every one of those elements in Daniel 2 and every one of these beasts in Daniel 7 are reflective of the same kingdoms. Daniel 7 just adds a little bit more detail, as does Daniel 8, add more detail. Are you following? Just an observation. And so as we're making this observation, and then we're studying, brothers and sisters, because sometimes we just we're make, we make assumptions about the end times, and we know what this power is going to do over here, but we really don't understand ourselves. So my job, what God has told me to do, is just teach. Now, you, you take you have to take an opportunity to go back and review and go back and study. Get the get the go to the podcast. It's going to be on the podcast. Uh, go go. The this feed is always on my Facebook page. Go on the Facebook page and and redo that. We're going to be taking these videos and put them on the online school too. So 
it's our time to study, brothers and sisters. It's our time to anchor ourselves in. So that's just the observation, okay? Now, the reason why, why this becomes important, because in Daniel 7, Daniel, Daniel was the one that God's giving this vision to. So Daniel's understanding these things. And in Daniel 7, verse 15, again, notice what happens to Daniel as he's responding to this vision. Verse, seven, verse 15 says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. So let's do this. Let me go here first, first, first. Let me. I thought I was going to. I'm going to come back to a certain piece in a moment. Let me jump ahead here, and then I'll share my screen. All right. That's that. That's that. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. Let me share my screen with you here. And you've seen these. Some of you have seen these before. Those of you who are listening, what I have on the screen right now is a picture of a lion with two wings. And this lion with two wings is, is symbolized by the king, kingdom of Babylon. That's what the lion with two wings mean, represents in Daniel chapter 7. And then we have its comparison to the head of gold in Daniel 2. So in Daniel 2, Babylon is the head of gold. In Daniel 7, Babylon is the lion with two wings like an eagle. Now, wings like an eagle represent swiftness and speed. Uh, let me, in fact, let me just see if I can pull that up and show you that. Let me take you to a, a verse Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse, verse number, yes. Actually, let me hold that, let me hold that back. So we'll come, we'll come back to Ecclesiastes. So the lion and the head of gold is Babylon. The next one here, the bear. The bear has three ribs in his mouth. Those three ribs represents the kingdoms that Medo-Persia Medo -Persia conquered in order to, to, to take dominion away from, from the surrounding kingdoms and from Babylon. So Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt are the three ribs that are in the mouth of the bear. Those are the three major kingdoms that Babylon conquered, I mean, that Medo-Persia conquered in order to come to full power, Okay. And you'll notice again, Medo-Persia is ruling from 539 to 331, generally speaking, okay? And the bear is equivalent to the chest and arms of silver in Daniel chapter 2, okay? The bear with three ribs in his mouth, it's raised up on one side, which we're about to read in a moment. Raised, We read already, it's raised up on one side, meaning, again, let me just, again, give you the interpretation, Medes and the Persians were co-ruling powers, and the Medes were a little less powerful than the Persians. So the Persians ended up being the major power, and if you look at some of the historical writings, Persia is the main power spoken of. It doesn't even really talk about the Medes. But the Medes and the Persians were co-ruling for a moment, and then Persia becomes the more dominant. So it's raised itself on one side. It's more powerful on one side. And it rules from 539 to 331. And then we have the leopard. The leopard has four heads. With four wings, two wings, you fly, that's pretty fast. Four wings is with great alacrity, great speed, 
and this has also has a leopard-like body, and it's very, very quick. And these four heads represent the four major generals. There are many other generals, but these four major generals that took over once Alexander the Great kind of passed off the scene, and it did not go to his progenitors. It did not go to, to any one person that took over Greece. Nope, it was divided by his four major generals, Cassander, Seleucus, Ptolemy, and Lysimachus. Those were the four major generals. And again, when we get to Daniel 11, I'm actually going to go into some serious history. I mean, you're going to have to love history <laughs> to go with me into Daniel 11. But right now, I'm just throwing it out there for a reference point because that's not my main point tonight. But these are the succession of the kingdoms. So Greece rules from 331 to 168 BC. Now, it's interesting that this leopard-like beast and the belly and thighs of brass, this is talking about the same power, okay? Daniel 7 is just expanding, giving a little bit more detail in regards to the power. But remember, in this prophecy, the main concern of Daniel is not beast number one, beast number two, or beast number three. The main concern of Daniel is beast number four. In fact, just so you can stay with me on that point, and I want to make sure you follow me there, go to Daniel chapter 7, and we're looking at verse number 17, okay? Daniel chapter 7, and we're looking at verse 17. It says, these great beasts which are four are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I would know the truth of the, what's it say? Fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron, and his nails of brass, which devoured, breaking pieces, stamped the residue with his feet, and of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. Watch verse 21. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Okay, all right. Stay with me now. So here we have the fourth beast. This is the one that bothers Daniel. This is the one that he's internally having these issues with. He's not concerned about Babylon. He's not concerned about Medo-Persia. He's not concerned about Greece. He is concerned about this fourth power, this fourth kingdom. Now, let me point out who this fourth kingdom is. Pull that up for you in a moment here. Now, that fourth kingdom is none other than pagan Rome, okay? Pagan Rome is the next kingdom that comes up. Pagan Rome comes up, and it's dominant. Now, if you look at the historical writings and you look at what Rome meant, and in fact, brothers and sisters, let me just say this. The influence of Rome, of pagan Rome, is affecting us all the way down to the end of time. I'll give you an example. Remember there, Daniel 2? The legs were of iron. And the feet were of iron and clay. You see that? Iron. And then it says iron and clay. In this prophecy in Daniel 7, you have a the fourth beast has 10 horns. And then there's a little horn that comes up. 
and speaks pompous words against God. That little horn goes all the way down to the end of time, but it's still a part of the fourth beast. Are you following? The nature of the beast has changed because it's lost three horns and a little horn has come up, but this little horn goes all the way down to the end of time, just like the iron goes all the way down to the end of time. Same thing in Daniel 8. When we get there, I'll show you that too. That little horn goes all the way down to the end of time. The influence of pagan Rome is present even in our day. The very way we set up our, our roads and our highways, the very way we set up our senates, right? All of that has an influence from that time till now. But we're observing. We're observing the text. So the fourth kingdom, pagan Rome. Now that... Let me see if I did that. That's right. So that pagan Rome dominates from 168 to 476. It dominates. It just it runs the world. And it, it has great influence in that time and even in our present day. Speaking of pagan Rome. All right. Let's go a little bit further. I, I need to establish a, a, another principle before I go. Oops. Let me stop that. Before I go further. Now, in the passage, go back to Daniel 7. Go back to Daniel 7. And I just I want you to follow me here. In fact, let me bring in, let me bring in my, my whiteboard. I want to share my whiteboard with you. In order to do that, take, take myself off a hold here. Let me share my all right. So what I want you to just follow me now. What we have, number one is Babylon. What we have, number two, is Medo-Persia. Number three, Greece. And this section, right? Number four, we have pagan Rome. This is a succession of kingdoms. Please keep that in mind, because when we read after it talks about the little horn and it goes and then it says the judgment is set and the books are open. What is that indicating? That's indicating. Let me write it. Judgment. Set. Books. Open. When it says judgment set books open, the next thing in verse number 13, it says that that the son of God goes in before God, the father to receive a kingdom. So this judgment set books open is the initiation of the establishment of an eternal kingdom. Are you following me? So. Initiate. Initiation of eternal kingdom. My handwriting is horrible, but it's all right, especially if you're writing on a, a screen. But this is normally what my handwriting looks like. <laughs> all right. So you have succession of kingdom, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome. I'm going to identify the little, the little horn in a moment. This little horn power, which comes out of pagan Rome, and then we have the judgment sits. Before there can be a transition of power, 
there has to be a clarification in regards to the kingdom. And so when that clarification of the kingdom is had, then it's given to the saints to take the kingdom. Okay. Keep that in mind. This is, we're following a pattern. Okay. We're following a pattern. Now, because when I when we when I identify the little horn, I, I don't want anybody to get caught up in their feelings, okay? Because it's not about our churches. It's not about any of that. It's about following God with everything we have, right? With everything we have, I just want to follow God. Everything that I everything that I possess belongs to God. My mind, my my soul, my body. So it's not about my church because one day my church might turn on me. It very well might happen to me. I I don't know. Uh, it, it might be uh, that. Something strange happens in this world, and as it is happening in the world, it may seem like I'm all by myself. But listen, if that's the case and we're by ourselves, if we understand the plan, then we don't need to fret. You follow? If we understand the plan, then we are in full trusting mode with Jesus. Without him, nothing else matters. All right? So there's a succession of kingdoms. Let me write that word. Suck. Session of kingdoms. Now, why is that important? Again, notice Babylon is first, Medo Persia second, Greece is third, pagan Rome is fourth. It's the fourth beast, but pagan Rome morphs, it changes, it adapts. In fact, I'll tell you right now, Rome is still alive, <laughs> it's not dead. It has great influence even in our day, okay? All right, so let us let me come out of this. Let me show you something else. Okay? Let me show you something else. Let me stop sharing the screen. Let me put this back in the hibernation mode. Now watch this. Go back with me to Daniel 7. And I hope you're following. I know this is real basic to some. Um, but sometimes we need to review the basic premises before we make our assertions otherwise. So let's look at a couple of things in the text that I want you to pay attention to that will help us with some identification components, okay? So in Daniel 7, again, it says in verse number, in fact, let me pull up my little, I made a simplified, well, it might be simple in my brain, but it might be complicated, but let me see here. Yeah, here it is. So I put a little chart together. It's only the words of the Bible, so don't worry about that. I just colored them, and we're dealing with the fourth beast, okay? So look at, look at the fourth beast here, Daniel 7. It says, after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. That was verse 7. Read verse 19. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured breaking pieces and stamp the residue with his feet and of the 10 horns that were in his head. Now we actually identified and looked at the 10 horns last time we studied. And again, I'll put it up on the screen so you can see it again. Hopefully I have it in my, my slide deck here. Yes, I do. Okay. I'll identify those again. 
As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I thought that was an interesting phrase. I'll come back to it in a moment. So now notice the interpretation, okay? And this is this is Gabriel, or I'm assuming it's Gabriel. It could be another another angel, but this is an angel speaking here. These great beasts, this is verse 17. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, okay? So we know that these are four kings. Or as the Bible says in verse 23, thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdoms. So the four kings are kings of kingdoms, which we've already identified as Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, okay? The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all the kingdoms. Well, why will the fourth beast be diverse from all the kingdoms? Then it says, and shall devour the whole earth. That means this is a global power. And shall tread it down and break in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings. So pagan Rome, at some point, there's a time when there are ten major divisions within Rome itself, which, again, I'll share with you. Let me share my other screen with you now. I'll put it here. Notice. These are the ten kingdoms, major ones. There were others, but these are the major ones. The Alemanni, which were the Germans, the Burgundians, the Swiss, the Franks, which are the French, the Lombards, which are the Italians, the Saxons, which are the English, or were the English, the, or are the English, the Suevi, which are the Portuguese persons of today, the Visigoths, which are the Spanish, and then we have these three, the Heruli, Ostrogoths, and the Vandals. Now, I thought this was interesting. The Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals. Remember the three horns that were plucked up by the roots? And if you pluck up something by the roots, that means they don't exist anymore. Now, it, remember, it says that the little horn did this, not some other horn. The little horn plays a part in the plucking up of these powers by the roots. So let me see if I can, so let me stop that. Let me see if I can scroll down. I want to give you a little bit of history and then you can look it up yourself in your own time. Okay. But let me give you a little bit of history here. Let me come out of that. Notice this again, look it up yourself. This is, you know, you don't have to believe in anything I say. This is from a book called Ancient and Medieval History by Hayes and Moon, page 448. It says, by the end of the 5th century, German rather than Roman rule existed in Italy, Gaul, Britain, Spain, and most of North Africa. The power of the Roman emperors was restricted to the Eastern Mediterranean and henceforth centered in Constantinople and not in Rome. Well, that's interesting. Why is that interesting? Notice this. Hold on. Notice this. All right, so here's the Heruli. This is the first horn. There's a man named Odiesar. I just put this here from my mental notes, but you can take notes as you will. Odiesar is the king of the Heruli, which is in Italy. 
he disposed the last Western Roman emperor. So he's coming in and he's causing havoc in this 10 tribe area, right? He's causing, causing issues. Infringed on matters of church authority. So Odiesar is misbehaving and he's meddling in church, church matters. Zeno, I'm probably not saying it right. He's the Eastern emperor, allowed Theodoric, king of the Ostrogoths, to fight with Rugi in Italy for two reasons. For what two reasons did he allow him to fight? He wanted the Goths out of the East. They would seek. Per, they were seeking a permanent stay, so they they wanted the Goths out of the East. He wanted to assist the Church of Rome by removing the Heruli, Odiesar, who infringed in church matters. So he wanted to remove this power so that he could have influence, and then he wanted to make sure he could help the church. So Theodoric, 489 to 490, three major victories he had. He there was an exhausting siege from 490 to 493, a peace treaty then, a secret plot between Theodoric and the Catholic bishop gets Odiacer mur murdered. So Odiacer... I'm saying Odiacer, <laughs> he's murdered, but there's a plot between the power of the state and the unity of the church. Stay with me. The state and the church came together to pluck up this little horn power, which we call the Heruli, whose king at the time was Odiacer. Everybody follow that? That's the first one. Watch this one. Yeah, and there's so much I want to share. Okay, stay with me. Uh, Matthew 24, 15 says these words, and we're going to actually study, go back over these passages again and another time. But it says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Well, what are we talking about? All these riddles. <laughs> Don't worry, we're going to understand these riddles. When ye shall therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So Daniel the prophet is the one that spoke about the abomination of desolation. When you see it stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Let's look at one of the places that this is made mention of. Daniel 11, 31. It says, arms shall stand on his part. And they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength. Remember what that's called. There's a sanctuary of strength, which I'm going to tell you right now is in the heavenly sanctuary. They're going to pollute the sanctuary of strength. How are they going to pollute the sanctuary of strength? Arms shall stand on his part. Whose part? Arms are going to stand on the part of persons who are anti-Christ. So a military strength will stand on the side of a power that is religious in nature, but antichrist. Stay with me. And shall, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. That, that means they're going to set it up. And remember Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, whosoever readeth, let him understand, what is this abomination that maketh desolate? Standing in a place where he ought not stand. Stay with me. So let's do a little bit of uh, this history reading here. This is taken from a book called History of the Diplomacy in the International Development of Europe, volume one, page 55, written by Hill. He writes, 
up to the time of Clovis, Clovis, the invading hordes of the East had moved steadily westward. Thenceforth, that tide was to be turned back and conquest was to proceed in the opposite direction. It was the Franks who, turning their faces eastward, checked further advances of the barbarians. Clovis and the Franks. Remember, the Franks are the French, okay? Clovis is the king of the Franks. He's pushing back these bar quote-unquote barbarians. Let's keep reading. Professor George Adams writes, out of the book called Civilization During the Middle Ages, page 141-42, he writes, Clovis founded a political power which was to unite nearly all the continent in itself and to bring the period of the invasions to an end. Well, that's interesting. What are we talking about here? Clovis is a unifying civil power bringing all the area underneath his one order, his one control. This plays significantly very shortly in a moment, my friends. Watch this. It was in the year 507 that Clovis and his Frankish army met the army of the Visigoths under their king, Alaric II. Alaric, realizing his weakness, tried to delay the confrontation, hoping help would come from Theodoric, king of the Ostrogoths. But no help came. And soon, the Visigoths were in flight and Alaric was slain. Uh-oh. Interesting. So now what are we what are we seeing? The Franks are coming up against the Visigoths. Remember, we said the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Visigoths, the three horns that were plucked up by the roots. So now what we see historically is that the Franks are coming up and they are obliterating, wiping out these people. Uh, the book his the history, the historian's history of the world, volume seven, page four seventy-three writes. The victorious Franks pursued them as far as Bordeaux, where Clovis passed the winter while, while Thierry, his son, was overrunning or um of I don't know how to say that word, my friends. Of of yes, Quincy and <laughs> and I don't know how to say that word, but you guys can see it. It's A-U-V-E-R-G-N-E. So you're overrunning that and R-O-U-E-R-G-U-E. -E. The Goths, whose new king was a minor made no further resistance. And in the following year, so what would be the following year? So 507 is when he started. So the following year would be 508. Okay, follow that. And the following year, the Sullian chief took possession of the royal treasure of Toulouse. He also took the town of Angoulême. Interesting. So 508, the king of the Franks is dominating. So by, the, by that time, the Visigoths are wiped out. But wait, there's more. 8508, a short time after these events, Clovis received the titles and dignity of the Roman Patricius and council from the Greek emperor Anastasius. Walter C. Perry, the Franks, page 85. In 508, Clovis received at Tours the insignia of the consulship from the Eastern Emperor Anastasius. Again, this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Why are we reading this? 
because Clovis is doing something in the year 508 that is actually establishing a power, brothers and sisters. I'll read this, these last couple of ones here. This is from the beginning of the Middle Ages, page through 38 and 39. It says, nor was this a temporary conquest. The kingdom of the West Goths and the Burgundians had become the kingdom of the Franks. The invaders had at length arrived, who were to remain. It was decided, pay attention, it was decided that the Franks and not the Goths were to direct the future destinies of Gaul and Germany, and that the Catholic faith and not Arianism was to be the religion of these great realms. This is by Richard W. Church, the beginning of the Middle Ages, page 38 and 39. Well, that's interesting. Why is that interesting? Because the king of the Franks, Clovis, had converted to Roman Catholicism in the 490s. And now, as he's dominating the region, his religion also dominates the region and brings all these nations and states together under this one religion. Stay with me. Thus, in the year 508, terminated, terminated united resistance to the development of the papacy. The question of supremacy between Frank and Goth, between Catholic and Aryan religions, had then been settled in favor of the Catholics. Daniel and the Revelation, written by Uriah Smith, page 330. Okay. Andre, you're boring us to death with history. Now, if you were bored by that, I apologize. However, it's necessary because what are we establishing? That there's a union between a church and a state that is plucking up these horns by the roots. These kingdoms are not just disappearing. There is a, con there is a unity between two powers that should not be, and it becomes a microcosm of a greater issue in our hours, last hours of earth's history. Okay, okay, okay. Let me move on. Let me move on. Let me move on. Let me come off of that. I was looking for something else. This is uh, Justinian newly codified Roman law. So I was looking, looking at some things in history. I came across this. This is written by Thomas Fitzgerald, page 100. Justinian used legal powers to control religious beliefs and practices of his subjects. He made orthodox belief a qualification of full citizenship. What did he do? He made orthodox belief a qualification of full citizenship. Those who refused to conform to orthodox doctrine were not allowed to inherit property. Hmm. They could not give evidence in court against the Orthodox. Death by burning was the penalty for being a professed member of the Manichaeans. Okay? What, what are we saying? So Justinian writes a law, literally, that you have to be of, of a certain religious persuasion in order to hold any positions or power, you could not inherit land. You could not go to court. You could not be a citizen if you did not follow and fall under a religious norm. Listen, I'm looking at history because history begins to be instructional for our day. The reign of Justinian was a unif 
the reign of Justinian was a uniform yet various scene of persecution, and he appears to have surpassed his indolent predecessors, both in the con contrivance of his laws, the rigor of, the, of their execution. The insufficient term of three months was assigned for the conversion or exile of all heretics. And if, and if he still connived at their precarious stay, they were deprived under his iron yoke, not only of the benefits of society, but of the common birthright of men and Christians. This is taken from Gibbons, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, page 47, uh, or chapter 47, page 837. What are we talking about? Justinian is passing a law, a religious law, that literally persecutes and prosecutes those who do not come in line with that law. Again, establishing a particular religion. Justinian, according to Bruce Shelley in Church History in Plain Language, page 146, 147, never distinguished Rome state tradition from Christianity. He considered himself to be completely a Roman emperor and just as fully a Christian emperor. Here lay the source of his whole theory, the unity of the empire and the Christian religion. The state itself was conceived to be the only community established by God, and it embraced the whole life of men. The mission of the pious emperor as the maintenance of the Christian faith in its purity and the protection of the holy Catholic and apostolic church from any disturbance. All right, let me, let me, let me pause for a second because I, I, I know I'm probably losing some folks. What am I reading? I'm looking at the establishment of, of religious law and the establishment of that religious law in the year 533 and then implemented in force in 538 comes about because there's a power developing that is uniting church and state together. Now, let me read a couple of passages to you so you can understand where I'm coming from with this. Go back to Daniel chapter 7. Look at verse... I'm going, to, I'm going to go through a series of text. I'm going to go through a series of text. Yes. I'm going to go through a series of text and watch what happens in these texts. You need to write these down. What I'm telling you right now, brothers and sisters, if you do not begin to really understand these things, when the crisis comes, and it is coming, and it's coming in full force, you're going to have to rest on what the word of God says because with your natural eye, it's going to look like, yeah, you know what? We should be giving in. Oh, we shouldn't be having these issues. You know, we shouldn't. You know, like we really need to understand. So let me back up. Let me repeat myself. The first instance with the herulai, that first horn being plucked up by the roots, there was a, a conniving between church and state to remove a political power. Okay? Church and state coming together to remove a political power. That's not what we're about. That's not what the scriptures are about, but I'm going to show you why in a minute. Then we have the, the, the story here that we're dealing, that we are de we dealt with, with, uh, 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 Clovis, the Franks dealing with the Visigoths. And he, he eliminates these guys. He gets them out, out of the picture. Okay. Get some, get, get them out. 
They're not part. They're not part of this thing anymore. He he's methodically uniting the powers underneath himself. And I think I said the wrong nation, but he's uniting all these powers underneath himself. Now, the last one, which is the kingdom of the Ostrogoths, the Ostrogoths in 533 around that time are surrounding Rome, Italy. And as they're surrounding Italy, Justinian makes this decree, but it cannot go into effect because there are two different popes put in, in, in power, two different persons in, in control. And so he makes an edict, but he can't execute because he's surrounded by, by these Aryan and this Aryan nation. Okay. And when this transpires, there comes a time when I believe it's Belisarius, he comes and he fights against the Ostrogoths, he pushes them back. He doesn't eliminate them right away, but he pushes them back, thus allowing now for the decree that was given in 533 to go into effect in 538. Okay? So we have the Heroli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. These are three horns plucked up by the roots. By the roots. Clovis initiates the establishment of this religion in a very high form, a union of church and state. And now in this instance, Justinian goes full bore. He makes an edict. If you're not of our religious persuasion, you cannot hold office. You cannot own property. You can't even go to court and stand for yourself honestly in court. This is what happened back in the day. And I might be missing some historical details, but hey, guess what? You do your homework. Go back and do the research yourself. Now, let me go back to the screen because I just I just wanted to make sure you, you were with me for a moment there because I know it's a lot of reading. It says, but an edict which he, Justinian, issued to unite all men in one faith, whether Jews, Gentiles, or Christians, such as did not I the term I the term of three months embrace and profess the Catholic faith were declared infamous and as such excluded from all employments, both civil and military, rendered incapable of leaving anything by will, and their estates confiscated, whether real or personal. They, these were convincing arguments of the truth of the Catholic faith, but many, however, withstood them. And against such as did, the imperial edict was executed with the utmost rigor. Great numbers were driven from their habitations with their wives and children, stripped Others betook themselves to flight, carrying with them what they could conceal for their support and maintenance. But they were plundered of the little they had. History of the Popes, Volume 1, page 334. Decline and the Fall of Rome, Chapter 47, 616, 617. All right. So that history is there. Now, somebody looks at this and says, Andre, are you hating on a church? Let me tell you something right now. Can I just tell you something right now? Every church in human history has messed up some way, somehow. Every church, my church, there's things that we should be standing for that we haven't stood for. I mean, everybody has their foibles. However, the scriptures highlight this power. So that's the only reason why we, we, we emphasize this particular instance, because the, the scriptures emphasize this power that springs up. Because in the plan of salvation, there is something that we must pay attention to because it's instructive for us as God's children. All right, stay with me. I know it's a lot. I know it's a lot. All right. Let me let me leave some of this alone. Let me go to this. See this? 
Let me you see this. I'm gonna put this image on the screen. What do you see here? You see a leopard-like beast. That's the leopard-like beast from Revelation chapter 13. And this little horn. They go together. Leopard-like beast, little horn, it's the same power. Same influence. But what is it about these, these powers that God is trying to warn us against or warn us about? What is it about these powers? All right. Go, go with me now to Daniel 7. Or Daniel, go to Daniel 8. I'm sorry. Go to Daniel 8. Now watch, take these verses down. These are the verses I wanted to share with you, okay? In Daniel chapter 8, and we're looking at verse huh. let's look at verse number 22. Okay? Daniel 8 verse 22. It says, now that being broken, whereas four stood up, stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. Okay, I want you to just take that phrase, but not in his power. So there's a power that stands up, but not in his power, which means there's some other power that's strengthening him to come to that space, right? He's not doing it of his own strength. Keep that in mind. Then it reads, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors shall come to a full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. So this power that comes up, this, you remember like that little horn that comes up, that power comes up, but not by his own power. It doesn't have his own strength. So mark that down. Verse 23, mark that down. Uh, make sure you mark that down and make sure you're right next to it, not by his own power. Go with me to Daniel 11. We read it already, but I want you to mark it down. Verse 31. Notice what it says. An arm shall stand on his part. What do you mean arms? It's saying that there's military might that stands on the part of this power that's coming to be. So this power of his natural self does not have strength. It is dependent upon the state to do what it cannot do. Stay with me. Stay with me. That was that was Daniel 11, verse 31. That was Daniel 11, verse 31. All right? Not on his part. So we have Daniel 11, verse 31. We had Daniel chapter 8 and verse number 23. And also verse number 22, okay? Not in his own strength, not in his own power. Revelation. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Now, for you guys to still be studying right now, tells me you're serious. <laughs> you're serious if you're still here. Revelation chapter 13. And I want us to look at verse... Number one and two. Watch what it says in verse number one and verse number two. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, upon his heads the name blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, 
and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth was as the mouth of a lion. And watch this. And the dragon, who? The dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So notice again, this power gets its power for somebody else. It, it does not do it in and of itself. Look at this. In that same context, look at Revelation 13. Look at verse number 10. Verse number 10 says, He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Now, what's that talking about? What's the sword? Do a little bit of a word search. So the sword, of course, in one context represents the word of God. But in another sense, the sword is the sword of the state. So this religious power uses the state to execute its prerogatives, its desires, its goals, its aims. The church uses the state to do this. Remember we, we studied Daniel 2? You may have forgotten this already. We said the iron and the clay. We did a whole study and showed that the iron, I mean, the, the iron is a symbol of the state and the clay is a symbol of the church and that there's a union, a desire union between church and state. And then God sees that as, a, that as an abomination and a rock cut out without hand strikes the image at the feet. A union of church and state is a church that depends on the state for its strength. Why is this an abomination? Stay with me. Stay with me. Do you know the old, you know the old, you know the story of Jesus dying on the cross? When Jesus dies on the cross, he he goes and he's in the grave, and when he raises from the grave, he goes to heaven. Right? He goes to heaven. I'm I'm, I'm definitely truncating the story. He goes to heaven, and when he goes to heaven, before he goes, he tells his disciples, "Tarry ye here, you, you know, just wait here until you receive the promise." Wait for the promise. Wait for the promise. What's the promise? Acts chapter 1, the promise of the Holy Ghost. John 14, John 17, it's the promise of the Holy Ghost that's going to be given to the church. Now watch this, friends, before I get there. Let me review. Let me back up. <laughs> so there's a little horn that comes up out of the head of the fourth kingdom, which we call pagan Rome. This little horn begins to speak blasphemous words. This little horn is anti-God or anti-Christ, seeking to be in the place of Christ. And this little horn uses the state to persecute and prosecute the people of God. Now, somebody said iron is a symbol of what? If you go back to Daniel 2, iron is a symbol of pagan, pagan Rome. It's a symbol of the state power. That's what, that's what iron is a symbol of. It is also a symbol of strength, okay? But let me let me stay in my the train of thought here. So the little horn comes up, and it's it persecutes and prosecutes the people of God. It's 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 destroying them. This is what causes Daniel to have pain in his body. He's like, what's going on? Why is this power dominant over God's people? This is what's causing him concern. So let's back up to the cross. Jesus dies on the cross. He goes to heaven. When he goes to heaven, wait for the promise. The promise of what? 
the promise of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus goes to heaven, he goes to heaven and he's anointed as our high priest, interceding for us. He's able to succor. The word succor means to help or to strengthen us. Now, I'm going to share with you a series of texts that you must pay close attention to as we bring our study to a, a, a pause, if you will. Go with me to the book of John. The book of John. The book of John, chapter 12. John, chapter 12. Because I don't want anybody thinking, oh, Andre is picking on a church. No, 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 no. I'm showing you what the Bible says about a system, and that system will have impact not just on them, but that has its impact on all the churches in the world, all the churches. No church is oblivious to the impact of the influence of this one church. John 12, look at verse 30. Remember, we're talking about Calvary. There is something special that transpires here, and I just need you to get it. John 12, verse 30 says, Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Now, who's the prince of this world at that time? Well, that was the devil and Satan. You know why? Because Adam who was the original prince of this world, gave his crown to the devil when he disobeyed God. Remember, Romans 6.16 says, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. So the devil says he took the crown from Adam, and God says, well, I'm going to send my son, and my son is going to take the crown from you. You follow what I'm saying? The devil was a usurper. He was, he was a false King, he did not deserve to be rulership here at all. But now is the prince of this world cast down. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Pay attention. Watch. Verse 32. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will do what? Draw all men unto me. You see Jesus at this point. He's about to go to Calvary and he's about to be crucified and he's going to bear the sins of the world. And the devil could find nothing in Jesus to cause him to, to stumble or to fall. That's John 14, 30. So now go with me. Watch, watch. Don't miss this. Because if you miss this, you're going to miss everything. And I don't want you to miss anything. Don't miss this. So go with me to the book of Revelation now. Revelation, remember John 12, it just says, if I be lifted up, the judge, the now is the judgment of this world, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Revelation 12, watch carefully. Revelation 12, and we're looking now at verse number 10. Stay with me. And I heard a voice, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and, what's it say? Strength. And the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. Why? For the accuser of our brethren is what? Cast down. 
which accused them before our God, how often? Day and night. Pause. So we just read in John 12, and Jesus says, now has come salvation and strength. The kingdom, um, uh, uh, um, the, the, the prince of this world shall be cast out. Revelation 12 just said, now has come salvation and strength. And it says, again, I'll read, and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. What do you mean now is come salvation? This verse is referencing back to Calvary. It's referencing back to the resurrection. It's referencing back. Now it's come salvation and strength. What's happened? So when Jesus raises from the dead, what does he do? He goes into heaven and he's anointed as our high priest. As he's anointed above, the church is anointed below. So the church below has strength. Huh? They got muscle. They're going forth conquering and the conquer. Revelation identifies the first century church as that white horse going forth, conquering and the conquer. The gospel is going to all the then known world. The Bible tells us in Colossians that it went to all the then known world. So my mind says, hmm, if I were the devil, and I'm not, but if I were the devil, what would I do? I would try to short circuit the power of the church. What do you mean? Watch this, friends. Open your Bible. Open your Bible. Psalms. Psalms. Because I don't want you, I don't want you thinking that these succession of kingdoms, that these powers are really our enemies. I mean, they they are not our enemies per se. The real enemy, my friend, is you and me. Watch this. Psalms 31 in verse 10. Psalms 31. In verse 10, it says, For my life is spent with grief, and my years with sighing, my strength faileth. Well, why would one's strength fail? Because of mine iniquity, and my bones are consumed. Wait. So the church, Jesus says, the enemy's cast out. Revelation says, now has come salvation and strength. But if, if iniquity takes away strength, then the devil has us. Are you following? If the enemy can get us to take away our strength, to cause us to break our covenant relationship, to not enter into that most holy place experience where sin is separated from us. If he can trick us to do this, then we have no strength. Hmm. Let me ask you a question. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask this in a, in a health perspective. If your immune system is weakened, what is the cause of your sickness? The virus or the lack of the building of your immune system? Well, if your immune system is weak, then yes, you're, you have the underlying causes. Is that what they're telling us, right? The underlying causes? They're under pre, pre, uh, predisposed conditions that will lead you to you know, be sick? Well, if you don't have those underlying issues, if your immune system is strong, if your fortress is built up, then how could the sickness find its way in? 
That's the same thing with sin, brothers and sisters. Pay attention. Sin should have no dominance over God's people. But because our immune system is down, y'all not hearing nothing I'm saying. You see, the papacy is not my problem. The, the Antichrist is not my problem. The Antichrist and the papacy is just a result of a violation of God's law. I'll show you that on, on Sunday. But my immune system, <laughs> the standard of righteousness must be built up. And as I, as I say no to the devil, I say no to his tricks and, and his temptations, then I can be strong. The question is, how do I build it up? Where does it come from? Watch this, friends. Watch this. Open your Bible to Psalms 96. Psalms 96. Psalms 96. Verse 6. Psalms 96. Verse 6. Watch this. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Wait. Oh, you got to get this. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Psalm 77, 13. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So watch this. Jesus ascends into heaven into the sanctuary. When he ascends into heaven in the sanctuary, he gives gifts to men. We're going to study this in detail. When he gives gifts to men and men are connected with him in the sanctuary above, then they are victorious. But what does the devil do? He introduces a power that separates the people from the sanctuary above and connects them with earthly power. Can I, I'm going to read something to you. I have to read it to you. I want to read it to you. And brothers and sisters, this is, this is, to me, one of the most profound things I've ever read in my life. And I was, before I get to what I'm going to read, this is a true story. I was on my way from Philadelphia to California. And when I travel, sometimes I, I get tired. You know, I just sometimes I like talking to people, but sometimes I just rather not talk to anybody. I'm not trying to be mean. I just, you know, don't want to talk to anybody. Anyway, I'm on my way and I'm always asking the Lord, Lord, is this somebody I should talk to or is this time for me to rest? You know, I'm always asking the Lord what would be his will. So I always test it out. I sit on the plane. I'm sitting on the plane and the person comes and sits on my right hand side. And I put my little test out there if this is the person wants to talk or not talk. They're not really the talkative person. Then I, somebody else comes and sits on my, my left-hand side. And when they sit on my left-hand side, I see that they have a, a collar, you know, like one of those um, collars that the, like, a, like a priest would wear or something like that. And he pulled out these beads. And I thought to myself, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe this is who I'm supposed to talk to. And as I'm sitting there and we're and I began to ask questions, come to find out that he's, he was a Jesuit working in a particular country. And he was doing missionary work, which I can relate to because I run a missionary training school and I do missionary work. And so we were, we were vibing. We were having a good conversation. And I was talking to him and asking lots of questions, making no assumptions, you know, and just being friendly. And as he was conversing with me, I asked, asked, you know, different things about the religion. And I asked about purgatory because I was trying to figure out, you know, why do you believe in purgatory? Like, where does it come from? And he's explaining to me 
purgatory. And then it dawned on me, you know, as I was talking to him, I asked him, I said, so you believe that when you die, you're going to go to purgatory? He's like, yeah, you know, because I got to get some stuff cleaned out of me. Da, da, da. I said, I get it. I get it. I get it on a whole nother level than I ever got it before. Salvation is not understood by the majority of humanity on planet Earth. I don't even care what religion it is. The majority do not understand salvation. And this particular power that comes up, because they don't understand salvation, what ends up happening? They end up leading people away from the sanctuary of strength, and the people of God have no strength, and now they're stuck in their sins. This is the issue. The issue is sin. And so God now is pointing people back to the sanctuary. He is the horn of our salvation. Did you? Did you? <laughs> I thought that was interesting. I was reading Luke, Luke chapter eight, and it was it was it was qualifying and talking about Jesus. Or Luke, I'm sorry, Luke, Luke chapter 1, verse 69 talks about Jesus as the horn of salvation. Psalms 80, 18, verse 2 talks about him as the horn of our salvation. This little horn that comes up is anti-salvation because it doesn't understand it. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't eat your way to heaven. You can't, you can't slip into heaven either. You can't keep lying and cheating and stealing and getting to heaven. Salvation works in such a manner that the person of Jesus Christ, who embodied himself in human flesh, lived an absolutely perfect life. Not one time did he sin. Not one time did he lie. Not one time did he commit adultery. Not one time did he bear false witness. Not one time did he covet. Not one time did he make an idol. Not one time did he uh, disrespect his parents. Not once, brothers and sisters. And because of that perfect life, he dies and seals that life in his death, and he conquers death in his resurrection. Because, my friends, if he did not come up from the grave, it would have indicated that he would have sinned. But because he is God and he has never sinned, my friends, then death could not hold him in the grave. And now that life that he is now raised up and gone into heaven, he now intercedes for us, and he ministers to us his life. It's his life. It's his goodness, it's his righteousness that he allows us to partake of, brothers and sisters. So let me read this to you. This is from a book called The Great Controversy. You may or may not know about it, but I find it to be a fascinating read. You don't have to believe anything it says, but I think it's pertinent and powerful because I believe it echoes what the scriptures warn us about. Great Controversy, page 567, paragraph 3, one of the most profound thoughts. The church's claim to the right to pardon, meaning that man thinks he can forgive sins, right? You, I see it on TV sometimes, right? So there are people that mobsters and gangsters and folks think they can go to a priest and confess their sins to a human being, not understanding that when you confess your, your sins to a man, those sins stay with that man. Same thing when you go to a counselor. You can't just confess your sins to a counselor or confess your sins to a friend and think that does away with the issue. No, my friends. Confess your sins to God. Put your weight on the lamb. Put your weight on the lamb. This is the issue God has with this church. And with every other teaching and every other church that wants to put their dependence on a state or on a man or on a woman, 
Cursed is the man that makes flesh his arm. The church's claim to the right to pardon leads the Romanists to feel at liberty to sin. And the ordinance of confession, without which her pardon is not granted, tends also to give license to evil. So somebody thinks, oh, you know, I can go do this and I go confess to my priest and then I can go do this, confess to my feast, not understanding you're crucifying the Son of God afresh every single time. He who kneels before fallen man, listen to this, and opens in confession the secret thoughts and imaginations of his heart is debasing his manhood and degrading every noble instinct of his soul. Mm, mm, mm. In unfolding the sins of his life to a priest, or you can replace that with a counselor or with anyone else, in unfolding this to a priest, an erring, sinful mortal, and too often corrupted with wine and licentiousness, his standard of character is lowered. What do you mean? Well, I'm a I'm a minister, right? You come, you want to counsel with Brother Andre. Oh, Brother Andre, I have this problem, this problem, this problem. Listen, I can't help you like that. I just got to point you to the man. His name, Jesus. He ever lives to intercede for us. It is the absence of this, brothers and sisters, that helps us, holds on to our weaknesses and our sins because we don't really want to give them up. Watch, I'm telling you, listen to this. <laughs> this blew my mind when I was done reading it. It says, his thought of God is degraded to the likeness of fallen humanity, for the priest stands as a representative of God. This degrading confession of man to man is the secret spring from which has flowed much of the evil that is defiling the world and fitting it for destruction. The practice of confessing my sins to another man? Not dealing with the issue? Yeah, that's a problem. Yet to him who loves self-indulgence, it is more pleasing to confess to a fellow mortal than to open, listen to this brothers and sisters, than to open the soul to God. It is more palatable to human nature to do penance than to renounce sin. It is easier to mortify the flesh by sackcloth and nettles and galling chains than to crucify fleshly lust. Let me say it differently. Because it's the principle, brothers and sisters. It's not just related to that church. It's a principle. Watch this. It is easier to become a vegan. It is easier to have dress reform. <laughs> it is easier to go to church on the seventh day than to renounce sin. You see, at the end of the day, friends, it is sin that makes us weak.
And all this power is doing, it's a manifestation of the hearts of men and women in this world. We don't want to submit to God. Let us make our own righteousness. Let us make our own standard. But guess what? It's not our world. He's the one that sits in judgment. Fear God and give glory to who? To him. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come, not some man's judgment, not your opinion, not some scientist making up stuff in a lab. It is the hour of God's judgment that's here, brothers and sisters. And it's because of his judgment. What do I got to say? Somebody says, don't judge me. Listen, I'm not judging you. I'm not judging your church. The most high does that. And he's perfect. And guess what? His judgment is just. His judgment is pure. And my friends, we have opportunity now to submit to him. So as I was on the plane <laughs> with this Jesuit, and we were talking, I began to talk to him about salvation. Because I realized at the end of the day, that's what's not understood. Salvation is not understood. I mean, it done. I was like, this is the problem. It's not that people are innately bad. That It's not that Buddhism is bad or Hinduism is bad, quote unquote. It's not that they don't have good morals. It's that morals alone won't save anybody. It's the salvation of God, the working of God, the righteousness of God that has to work inside of us to purify us, to restore us. To bring us to a place where we are completely 100 submitted to God. That's where it has to be. Because otherwise, we're playing games. We have a form of godliness. And we're denying power. Strength and beauty are in the sanctuary. That's where Jesus is. And this power came along and said, you know what? Instead of confessing your sins directly to Jesus, because you can't go to him, go to a priest. And this priest has power to call down God to make him obey him. No, my friends. No. No. So you know what happens when we don't have power from above? We get to seek power from the state. And evidence of a fallen church is a church that seeks the power of the state to enforce righteousness. But love does enforce. Love is patient, and kind, long-suffering. Love will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It is more palatable to human nature to do penance than to renounce sin. It is easier to mortify the flesh by sackcloth and nettles and galling chains than to crucify the fleshly lusts. Heavy is the yoke which the carnal heart is willing to bear rather than bow to the yoke of Christ. Will you bow to the yoke of Christ, brothers and sisters? Will you allow Jesus? To come in, <laughs> I mean, he promises, he says, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When he's sitting in that judgment, brothers and sisters, and he coming up upon our names, he's not looking to erase us from the books. He's looking to establish us eternally in those books. And he's looking to write his law in our hearts. That's what he wants. 
So beware of trusting in flesh. Beware of your church or any other church seeking the power of the state as a replacement for the power of God. Beware. Parents, beware of using dragon-like force to raise your children. Or to use sacrificial love to demonstrate that love to your children. The principle is deep from a personal level to a global level. Love versus force. Our God is patient. And he's coming. And he will not tarry. Will you allow God to work in you to do what you cannot do for yourself? And as we connect with the most high and the most holy place, that's the true union of that church and state. The kingdom of God is connected with, the, with us as kingdom of men. And then we can take the kingdom. Then God's character is proclaimed. God can and will help us. Will you do that today? Will you, will you submit yourself to God? To allow him to work in you, but you cannot work yourself. Bow your heads with me. Father, we've spent a long time tonight, but your word is good and you are patient. There have been succession of kingdoms. Each one has come and gone, some following your instruction and then falling away from it. Each nation has had an opportunity to glorify your name and each has failed because everybody's trying to do it in their own strength. Father, forgive us for seeking to live righteously by ourselves. We can't solve these problems. We can't. Please take our hearts for we cannot give them. They are your property. Keep them for we cannot keep them for thee. Save us from ourselves, our weak, unchrist-like selves, and raise us into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich currents of your love truly can flow through our souls. Father, you are the horn of our salvation. Help us not to worship anybody else. No other church. <laughs> no church. We don't worship no church. Worship no pastor or preacher or priest. We want to worship you. Teach us how, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, thank you for taking the time to listen. Please pass on this uh, talk to someone that you think would benefit from it. And I will see you again, hopefully, on Sabbath afternoon, 630, Saturday afternoon, 630. Uh, by God's grace. God bless you. You have a wonderful evening. Maranatha.